Amira Rose Davis is a critical sports scholar, which means she knows a lot of history, but she's also a straight-up sports fan. I'm a football girl. Really? <laughs> My first word was touchdown. <gasps> like, it's so embarrassing, but it's <laughs> true. <laughs> Recently, Amira's been watching more basketball than football. The scholar in her is captivated by the way the players have been shifting the game. If you've tuned into the NBA bubble or the WNBA equivalent, it goes by the wobble. You know what I'm talking about here. Players in both leagues made their return to the game contingent on a commitment to civil rights and social justice. They modified their uniforms with slogans like equality, enough, liberation. Just optically, you can look on the court. You can see Black Lives Matter splashed across, um, you know, the baseboards. You can see the jerseys. Um, and I think that the WNBA has placed clear signs and indicators that the season was beyond them, more than them. Well, Jewel Lloyd, this has been by far your most consistent, focused year of basketball we've ever seen. How were you able to be in this zone, in this moment, during one of the most difficult seasons? You know, this, this year has been a lot. After the final WNBA playoff game last week, an emotional Jewel Lloyd of the Seattle Storm said she was dedicating her win not just to her mentor, Kobe Bryant, but to Breonna Taylor. She was holding back tears. This is for Kobe, Gigi, and the Bryant family, and for Breonna Taylor. We had a lot of emotions coming to this. Amira says the way WNBA players have shined a relentless spotlight on the issues that are important to them it maybe shouldn't be all that shocking. It's really a continuation of the way WNBA players have been trying to reorient the game for years. The league has had a commitment to social justice, and they've done it without appreciation four years ago, weeks um, before, you know, Colin took his first knee. WNBA players were talking about police brutality. They were refusing to take questions unless it had to do with police brutality. But this year, there was a difference. For the WNBA, their commitment to social justice got personal. WNBA players have been wearing shirts to protest in Atlanta Dream co-owner. Players on the Chicago Instead of simply encouraging their fans to, say, vote, WNBA players started encouraging fans to cast a very specific vote against one of their team owners. Republican Senator Kelly Loeffler of Georgia co-owns the Atlanta Dream. She has criticized the Black Lives Matter movement and the WNBA players who support it. That includes players on her team. And that led some athletes to push back by supporting the man running against Loeffler this November. Today on the show, sure, basketball players have started encouraging their fans to get out and vote. But can these WNBA activists influence who their fans vote for? I'm Mary Harris. You're listening to What Next. Stick with us. This episode is brought to you by Discover. When it comes to your finances, Discover wants you to know they are the credit card that is always there for you. With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, that means no more waiting for, quote, normal business hours just to get a hold of someone. We are talking real service from real people whenever you need it. Get the customer service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. 
to really understand how the WNBA ended up launching a full-fledged campaign to oust a sitting senator who's also a team owner, you need to understand the characters here. Starting with Kelly Leffler, the senator herself. She represents Georgia, was appointed just last year. Now she's in a tight race to keep her seat, the old-fashioned way, by winning an election. So I feel like if anyone knows Kelly Loeffler, you like might know her as the senator with the really long blonde hair <laughs> who was just appointed in Georgia last year. And she's become this outspoken Trump supporter. But I feel like people might not know that she owns the dream. Like they might not know about her history with basketball. So how did she even get involved with the WNBA? Yeah, I mean, I think that, like many rich people, <laughs> they get involved with, uh, you know, ownership of sports teams. So she had a minority stake in the dream for the last decade. And it wasn't anything that, um, at first, was like her her core political aims or her core professional aims. It was just like, hey, I have a minority stake in this. Um, but then her and Mary Brock moved to purchase the team. And that's when she got a little bit more active, where she was attending games. She was meeting with coaches. It's a real honor and, and a responsibility to be a part of the dream. And I'm going to take that to heart. And so just to give... Leffler joined the WNBA at a moment of generational change. The league was growing into a blacker, queerer persona and starting to talk openly about social justice issues. Amira says Leffler was part of a group of owners that thought making their teams marketable meant making them look more white, more straight. And after a few years, that divergence started causing tension with players. When it really started to come up was when she turned and focused on her political career. So in particular, in the fall of 2019, she stepped down from the WNBA's Board of Governors and she stopped being involved in um, the kind of day-to-day -day ownership of a team process. And part of the reason why is her association with the WNBA, which is seen as a very Black, very queer league, was kind of knocking her and her political aspirations in conservative circles. <laughs> and so I think that over the last year and a half, you have seen this tension start to build, start to mount. And that's really when it started coming to a head. I mean, my understanding is that before she went to Washington, Loeffler was actually kind of a moderate. Like, she supported Mitt Romney, gave him a bunch of money. Do you know why she tacked to the right so abruptly? Well, I think that she's a... Uh... I think that's a career move. One of my favorite um, things that illustrates exactly what you're saying about her kind of switch from moderation to throwing herself hardcore in with like the further to the right is, you know, a few years ago, the WNBA had a partnership, uh, take a seat, take a stand initiative that put portions of their game day ticket sales to five partner organizations, one being Planned Parenthood. Huh. Um this summer, when people, you know, rose that point to her, um, brought it up, she was like, oh, well, my organization never participated in that. And is that true? No, not at all. <laughs> but, like, I think that that exactly is, um, you know, to your point, that sh there's a way that she's trying to engage in some revisionist history. It's almost transparently, like, it's almost very easy, right, to, to kind of map her career aspirations alongside her kind of track to the right and being more outspoken. And so I think that over the last year, 
She's really tried to get in with the kind of inner circle around Trump. And part of that has been figuring out, well, what to do about <laughs> this, this connection I have to the Atlanta dream. Loeffler is focused on branding herself as a Trump conservative, partially because of the kind of election she's having to run right now. Last year, Loeffler got appointed to the Senate by Georgia's governor to replace a veteran politician who was stepping down for health reasons. The president reportedly wanted someone else to fill that seat, a guy named Doug Collins. He's a member of the House with a more conservative record than Loeffler's. Now, in the special election to keep her seat, Loeffler is competing against a huge field of candidates, including firebrand conservative Doug Collins, because there's no primary in this race. And if none of these candidates gets above 50 percent of the vote, the election goes to a runoff. My head hurts honestly thinking about her race. And so you can <laughs> understand that her, how her political situation is very tenuous. It's, she's very much um, not stable, right, in her political career. And I think that her escalation of drama with the WNBA I think all of this is really kind of naked, <laughs> naked aspiration to hold on to what little crumbling ground she has. Hmm. So we have a candidate who very much wants to keep her seat. She's representing some pretty conservative voters. And then after the George Floyd protests, the WNBA team that she part owns comes out very much in favor of Black Lives Matter. Absolutely. You had high profile players from the dream like Elizabeth Williams, out there um, marching, holding signs, posting images of themselves at the protests, becoming very vocal, as with other people in the league, connecting the founding of the Atlanta Dream, name for, you know, King's I Have a Dream speech, to their desire to protest and agitate for change. We will continue to use our platform to speak of these injustices that are still happening and demand action for change. Black Lives Matter, say her name, say his name. Tonight, we stand, and while we have heavy hearts, we stand with strong and determined voices and ask all our fans to vote, to engage, and to make that difference. After the league in early July indicated that they were going to dedicate their season to Black Lives Matter, to say her name, to Breonna Taylor, um, she wrote an open letter to the president of the league and said that she absolutely disagreed with this. She thought that it was not a political movement that the WNBA should be behind. She said that Black Lives Matter sends a message of exclusion. Exactly. And she went on to basically say that it was about violence and anti-Semitism and unequivocally did not want the league to be associated with this. That's a lot to put on Black it's a Lives lot. Matter. <laughs> it's a lot. And then the players were like, um, girl, bye, essentially, <laughs> you know. Um, and I think that that is when it, that that tension really erupted publicly because um, her letter wasn't like this private letter to Kathy. It was a public open letter that was the audience was very clearly her constituents. And that's when this kind of tension with them moved into the spotlight. I'm glad you said that because it really... It really did seem like a piece of political theater that she had staged all on her own, you know, with the letter that she sent out. And then, 
you know, all of a sudden she's on Fox News and the senator is, you know, defending what she has to say about Black Lives Matter. And it seemed like, who are you speaking to here? Absolutely. And it was very clear. I mean, right away, her own players, like Renee Montgomery, was like, hey, I would love to have a conversation with you. And she was like, "Mm, I didn't hear that. I mean, I would welcome a conversation. But even when she said she would welcome a conversation, she was already saying, but it would have to be a dialogue. You can't cancel me. Uh, what does that mean? It it was it was again felt very disingenuous. It was this rhetoric of cancel culture, saying you can't fire me or push me out, or you can't make me sell my team just because you don't like what I have to say. And it's like nobody, like Renee, literally said, "I would like to talk to you about this." And we should say there's a history of people selling their teams because of what they've said. So I guess that's what she was alluding to there, precisely. But at that point, nobody had even gone that far except for her. And I think that. Part of that was this, that was kind of the performance that a lot of people took objection with because it's like, you are using the rhetoric of cancel culture. You're flaming the the flames of your constituents by saying, look, they're trying to cancel me. You're preemptively trying to guard against being canceled when nobody even said that. The first time that anybody even raised that was when she was doing a round on conservative television talking about how nobody could give in to mob rule. We cannot allow mob rule. We're a nation of the rule of law. And this is exactly what will happen if we defund the police. And And at that point, a few players were like, hey, your comments about mob rule are are racially insensitive or racist. We we don't think you should have an ownership stake in, in a team that's predominantly Black. And at that point, a few players were like, hey, you know, get out of here. And really... The way that she was escalating it was by doing the rounds on conservative media to to position herself as this kind of conservative victim of these like liberal queer black basketball players and a league behind them that is forcing her to celebrate and and amplify Black Lives Matter. And that was how she was constructing it. And so the WNBA players who initially were saying, hey, let's talk about this, or were saying, you know, enough, get out, or tweeting and engaging with her, very quickly were like, this feels like political football. This feels like not actually about us, and we don't want to be used as objects. And so they had to regroup and re-strategize about what to do about the problem of Kelly Loeffler. Hmm. So part of what I think makes what happened in the NBA so interesting is that it wasn't just the dream that came forward and started speaking out about Loeffler. It was really the league. How did that happen? Yeah, it wasn't just the dream because the league is in great communication with each other. One of the powers of the WNBA is how well they work together as a unit beyond the kind of boundaries of who's on what team. And in that sense, um, they very quickly realized that Kelly Loeffler was trying to play political football with them, was trying to use them as objects in her own political quest. And to that end, they said, how can we engage? So it's not just us retweeting something dumb that she says and saying, get out of our league and that going viral, but how can we really try to figure out how to pull back from, you know, being used in this way and assert ourselves as participants in the political process? And one of the ways that they, you know, decided to do that was to say, hmm, let's learn about her her Senate race. Let's learn about who she's in competition with. Let's learn about the people running against her. Some players decided to reach out to the other candidates in Loeffler's race. 
and they set up these Zoom calls to hear about everyone's platform. They zeroed in on Raphael Warnock. He's the pastor at Ebenezer Baptist Church in Atlanta, Martin Luther King Jr.'s old church. And his commitment to social justice resonated. After meeting with Warnock, a lot of the players on the dream um, decided, hey, like, we want shirts endorsing this. And and Sue Bird and players from across the league was like, count us in. Like, we want shirts. (laughs) We want to do this. (laughs) And, like, the idea is, hey— we don't want to give her any more time. We don't want to give her, we don't even want to raise her name. We don't We don't want to talk about her. Instead, let's use the platform we have, let's use the, the eyes watching us to wear the name of her opponent and to move from that message of vote to saying specifically, no, vote Warnick. A political statement tonight from members of the Atlanta Dream against their owner. Dream player Elizabeth Williams tweeted this photograph right here wearing a Vote Warnock shirt. Social media was filled with WNBA players wearing that same shirt tonight. And they were very clear, like, this is not something that we're, you know, as individuals, like, nobody in the league was forced to do this. But the collectivity of the league, when they all were kind of like, no, we're going to stand behind the dream. We're going to stand as a league. And we're going to stand very publicly and say, hey, we're going to rock these shirts. We're going to rock them getting off our bus. We're going to rock them in the wobble. We're going to rock them as as warm-ups. And we are going to make sure that you know who this candidate is because he is who we believe in, not her. They made this other decision, which you kind of alluded to there, but I think we should talk about it more, which it was an active decision that they would not use Kelly Loeffler's name. Can you talk about why the players decided to do that? Yeah. And so, I mean, I think that coming to the realization that one of the things that Kelly Loeffler was trying to do was to um, essentially use them by staying in the press and having their fight is that they didn't want to give her any more time of the day, any more... Oxygen. Any more oxygen, any more attention. And so they were like, all right, we're not going to talk to you. We're not going to use your name. How would that go in, like, interviews? Would it get weird? No. Uh, it's funny. <laughs> <laughs> they would say her, right? Um, she who must not be named. Exactly. That's I always think very Harry Potterly about it. <laughs> <laughs> and so I think a number of players in our league that have expressed that that she's there's no place in the league for her. But that's essentially was the move. We know we're going to get questions about it, and we're going to use that space. We're going to use that interest to uh, pivot right when we get those questions, to shine a light on Reverend Warnick and on our Get Out the Vote efforts. And, you know, talking about the importance of not just voting, but for voting for candidates who support social justice. And it denies her her victimhood. I mean, you sort of talked about it, about how when Loeffler launched this letter and this campaign to be anti-Black Lives Matter, it really seemed very presentational. And the thing I think it's so interesting about being silent about her name is it's very hard to then paint yourself as a victim. Absolutely. I mean, I think that that is such an important point because you can see the way that she's very well positioned 
to, you know, you already mentioned her long blonde hair and her, you know, she's, she's a white woman. And we have already seen the power of white women's tears. And I think that she was very well positioned to have this scripted in a way that it was, look at this big, bad, black, queer league against little old me. You know, <laughs> a vote for me is a vote for conservative values. And I'm not backing down to these bullies and I'm not doing that. Well, like you said, that that is a lot harder to do if nobody's talking about you. That's a lot harder to do to say, look, I'm being targeted. If people are like, we're just talking about your opponent, like who's targeting you? Nobody's even talking about you. I'll be back with Amira Rose Davis in a minute. Can I ask what's at stake for the WNBA players? Like, were their jobs at risk making this kind of a stand? Yeah, the WNBA has always engaged in risk, to be honest. Um, they have, uh, it's interesting, right? They have less to lose than their, you know, counterparts in the NBA because they have they less. they make much less. Exactly, in the first place. Um, and so they, over the years, you know, when I talk about 2016, I talk about, you know, the the jerseys that they wore, um, the league tried to find them a dress code violation, five hundred dollars per shirt that they wore that said Black Lives Matter in it instead of and being a black shirt instead of their their regular warm ups, and they didn't care. They took a risk, and I think that that risk is something that so many WNB players have always looked in the face and just kind of kept barreling through no matter what. What do you think that is? Well, I think that, you know, they have had to work and fight for every inch that they've gotten for their league to exist, to for it to keep going, for every, you know, to, to get respect. And I think that when we talk about stakes, it's really important to know that this WNBA season was so important even before a pandemic because it was the first season being played under their new collective bargaining agreement that they had fought for and that had really set the tone for the standards for CBAs across pro sports, but especially in women's sports, for what they gained in that new collective bargaining agreement. And this was the first season where they had new investors, they had new media partnerships, they had a new investment in the game, and it was their time to showcase it. And so I want to really underscore that because even though they had less to lose, it didn't mean that, you know, they're out here just kind of frolicking happy in 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 the mountains or something. Like there was a lot, a lot at stake, especially because this was the time where you did have that initial investment and eyes on them and the world kind of stopping and them returning to the sport to say, all right. Show off your league, showcase it. And the calculation that was made was when we're showcasing our league, we're going to do it on our terms. And what that is, is a fierce advocacy for for women, for LGBTQ rights, for say her name, particularly focusing on Black women, but also generally Black Lives Matter. And we are going to have the audacity to be us and demand respect on our terms. And that's what they gave. And Did that pay off for them? In terms of revenue? It absolutely did. It's so funny. Ratings for sports across the board are down right now. The NBA finals, the NFL, the MLB finals, the Stanley Cup finals. You know what's up in ratings? The WNBA is up 68%. Whoa. 
that's a fun stat to remember when you hear people. Somebody tweeted yesterday, go woke, go broke, to talk about <laughs> the people like allegedly tuning out of the NBA because they dare to take a stand. Well, the people who have been taking the biggest stands, who've been talking the loudest, who've been taking the most decisive actions, WNBA, and their ratings are up 60%. And I think that that, led by the players, has created a a lot of pushback, a lot of troubling of this idea, this notion that in order for the WNBA to be marketable, you have to make it straight and white and palatable and not rock the boat. And instead they said, we're doing it on our terms. We're demanding what we deserve and we're not going to back down. And at least this season, this very unusual season, um, they've paid off. Just a few years ago, I I don't think it would be all that strange to see athletes refusing to engage with politics themselves, saying, like, listen, that's just not what I do. I'm here to play the game. What do you think changed? Well, I think that's a really important point. Um, And one of the things that I think is really vital to understand is what has shifted for so many athletes is not their desire to speak up, but rather that feeling of a little bit more security (laughs) in being able to do so. When you have, in the wake of George Floyd, the corporate response that we've seen, the unprecedented, frankly, corporate response, where all of a sudden corporations and leagues are are running to say Black Lives Matter, it opens up a space for more action. And within that space, people who were perhaps more precarious or scared or worried about sponsorship um, have a little bit more uh, room to maneuver, a little bit more cover, Um and it's hard, right? It doesn't it doesn't mean that leagues won't, but it's harder to discipline players if you're saying, hey, this is something that that we believe in as as an entity. Now we're saying, hey, now that you're making these corporate statements, we have more room to maneuver. Now you if you're saying this publicly, you also can't try to muzzle us. And that has uh, opened up the ability for more widespread engagement. There is this element of like the house always wins to this battle, though, where I just keep thinking about, I mean, you mentioned viewership for the WNBA is up 60-some percent. Even if Kelly Loeffler loses the Senate seat, her investment in the WNBA is going to deliver for her, partially because of the activism against her. And it is, I just wonder if it frustrates the players. Well, I think that part of what you're describing is a frustration in all of sports. I mean, like, um, we were just I was just having this conversation with my co-host Jessica Luther about how annoying it is with these owners. I'm thinking of Donald Sterling. I'm thinking actually in the National Women's Soccer League, this happened with Del Hansen and Utah Royals, where his punishment for being racist was to sell his team and get money and <laughs> not have to work. And yeah. that's generally how I kind of feel about, you know, this situation as well. Is in 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 some ways that is a version of the house always winning where if what many people would like her to do is go away and get out of the league. So she shares, you know, she sells her 49%, whatever, sharing the dream. So she's just getting paid. <laughs> like, it's it's annoying that that is so often, like, the only kind of recourse. But um, I do think it's the reality in some ways. Um, and I do think that there was no way that 
the WNBA was going to fully be able to um, nullify like her use of them politically. I don't think there was any way that they were going to fully be able to disentangle from her and how she wanted to try to use their relationship in her political pursuits. Um, But I do think what they did was to take a step to say, all right, we don't have to be passive when she's, if this is going to happen either way, we don't have to passively let that happen. And I think that they're setting a blueprint for other leagues because this is not the last time that a league is going to deal with an owner like this. we're, We're seeing the NWSL, you know, in a situation like that. But I think what they're offering is a different blueprint for a response and engagement with it. Amira Rose Davis, thank you so much for joining me. Yeah, thanks for having me. Amira Rose Davis is an assistant professor of history and African-American studies at Penn State. She co-hosts the podcast, Burn It All Down. And that's the show. One thing I want to mention today is that if you have been enjoying this show, think about signing up for Slate Plus. It is a great way to support all the work we do. Slate Plus members get ad-free versions of all of our shows, including this one. And it's just 35 bucks for your first year. You can sign up for a free two-week trial at slate.com slash plus. That's slate.com slash plus. What Next is produced by Jason DeLeon, Daniel Hewitt, Mary Wilson, and Elena Schwartz. We are led by Allison Benedict and Alicia Montgomery. And I'm Mary Harris. Thanks for listening. I'll talk to you tomorrow.